This episode is brought to you by Tough Love Medical Center. At Tough Love, they patch up and maybe put a cast around all your little boo-boos. Wham, 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 just like all those other dens of quackery. But at Tough Love, they're equally, no more concerned about the well-being and strengthening of your character. Have you ever worried that all the around-the-clock, non-judgmental attention that you've received at other medical facilities might have actually weakened your soul? When you arrive at the emergency room at Tough Love Medical Center, the first thing they do is start things off right with their four questions of conditional assistance. One, how did this happen to you? Two, looking back, is there any way you could have prevented it? Three, how do you plan to change your ways to prevent this from happening in the future? And four, do you feel any remorse for how this catastrophe will affect your family or the staff at Tough Love Medical Center? Most importantly, at Tough Love, they don't tolerate people lying about in a hospital room when it's perfectly obvious they could, if compelled to, drag themselves along the floor to the car on their own. There are no discounts at Tough Love Medical Center for our listeners because, so they told us, there are no shortcuts to a life worth living. You came into this world without coupons, and without coupons you shall leave. Nevertheless, thank you Tough Love Medical Center for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. But they've asked us to add, that's nice of us to say, but they didn't do it for thanks, and from now on, we're on our own. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book. Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Craig, so much love for our conversation with John Crowley. Well-deserved, too. Yeah, absolutely no surprise. Uh, there's a lot of totally deserved love out there by people who are wolf readers and by people who should be wolf readers but inexplicably aren't, like like John Crowley himself has been. I know. And I did mention to him that whenever uh, people ask for other wolf-like people, that it's always him and Lafferty. And then we mm-hmm. joked about how big a coup that would be to get Lafferty on the show. <laughs> so I'm thinking now, I've been thinking ever since we said that, I was like, hmm, what could we do instead? But I mean, who knows? Maybe we could get, I mean, we, there are a few people who are kind of Lafferty scholars who've been on it. Or the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast guys have talked a lot about Lafferty. I don't know. There's there's other ways we could maybe get Lafferty connected. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, Just got to be creative. We'll, we'll do a, a link up with the uh, R.A. Lafferty Facebook page. and Yeah. Yeah. Uh, something we failed to mention, and listener Stephen Frug pointed out, Although Crowley has not read Wolf up till now, Wolf read Crowley for sure in Castle mm-hmm. of the Days, uh, not Book of Days or Castle of the Otter. Castle of Days has both those works, but it also has a third section at the end called Castle of Days. And the first essay in that third section is called Lone Wolf. And in this essay, Wolf interviewed himself, as he, of course, did separately in Castle of the Otter, but this is different. And at the beginning of the interview, he interrogates himself as to whether he is sufficiently conversant with the genre to qualify as an interviewer. And after a good grilling of himself, he finally responds, I've read Little Big, superb, 
And then he responds to himself and says, oh, well, I see what you mean. It's an education in modern fantasy all by itself. Okay, shit. <laughs> yeah, I wish he would have elaborated, but still, it's, <laughs> at the very least, it's a big compliment. Yeah. And that's cool. Yeah, I really wish that he had done a whole essay on what mm-hmm. he meant by that to elaborate it because it just would have been cool. But yeah. But it also is interesting when he says that that's a lesson in modern fantasy, because if you have read Little Big, you know that it is like Wolf. It sort of hints at all the things that mm-hmm. are going on, magical and strange. But even when you get to the end, it's not really laid out. I mean, you finally do get a glimpse into Fairyland. I guess that's a, right. a spoiler, but sorry. Um, <laughs> but it's but it doesn't. It's wonderful, but it doesn't really explain things completely. Um, but Crowley's Crowley's books aren't like Wolf, where if you don't know exactly what's going on, it it leads you to to look for a very particular mystery to solve. Mm-hmm. So it's not like it's it's a different kind of thing. But the one fact of it is is that kind of not really knowing what's going on is central to Little Big, and that to me is pretty cool. That Wolf thinks that that is central to modern yeah. fantasy. Yeah, so. oh, yeah. I would think that's kind of what he's talking about. Mm. Well, not so much love from people who would admit to having read Hamlet's Mill. Most said they couldn't get through it, or if they did, they didn't understand it, which is a totally rational summation. Yeah. And I even saw that Crowley somewhere on Facebook even mentioned, yeah, I'm not sure, honestly, if I ever finished it. (laughs) (laughs) Which is honestly kind of how you could get... Yeah. You can certainly feel like you've read that book for years and have missed an essay. Yeah, exactly. And it may not even be necessary. Once you understand it, you understand it. Yeah. That's the revolutionary part. Well, of course, it's not exactly true that we got no love. Uh, Lord of Atlantis on Reddit did chime in to say that he liked my Hamlet's Mill interpretation of the Book of the New Sun very much. The thing is, It's not about the particulars, like I say. It's just the model itself. If you understand the general language, as I described in the episode, and if you understand that floods, fiery destruction, descents to the underworld or below the sea, exiling people underground like the Titans or the Tuatha Dei Danann, all these are cosmological stories about the same sort of event. And that's true in wolf stories, too. So, you know, when, when Wolf references Puss in Boots in The Wizard Knight, or The Flying Dutchman in Counting Cats in Zanzibar, or The Fist Head of Cerberus, yeah, right? The clones are kind of Flying Dutchmen, where mm-hmm. you kill the Flying Dutchman, you become the Flying Dutchman. Well, those are all inspired from Hamlet's Mill, which we know Wolf read and loved because it's the only 20th century book quoted in the Chrasmological writings, and it gets its reference at the very end of the Book of the Short Sun, of special honor, you know, in a novel. But, Craig, I'm liberated. And now I can reference <laughs> the cosmological aspects of this book as they appear. And that's a good thing because, I, you know, it would have gotten awkward around the time we got to the tale of the student and his son in the next volume. You know, I think I've figured out what our niche is in the Gene Wolf world. It's that we feature strange, overarching, comprehensive, <laughs> conspiratorial theories about things. So so we've had first Severian for the first one. Now we're switching to Hamlet's Mill, and it's got to be my turn next. So I'm going <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, to have, hmm, yeah, that's, that's got to be. Bring it on, man. We're, and by the end of it, it's going to be awesome because we'll have like eight things that totally explain every detail, and none of them are completely consistent, and that'll be awesome. <laughs> Well, people are going to be begging me, can't you just go back to talking about the first Severian theory? (laughs) But enough about that. 
let's talk about Severian's duel. People could not wait to talk about this chapter. Usually it takes, you know, a few days for people to mull over their responses. But in this case... I think there are some chapters that are just more sort of set pieces that people really want to listen to. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it wouldn't surprise me if like this and Alton's library and things like that, you know, people kind of hang around for the the ones that are really cool and we'll listen to those. But yeah, it's probably true. But it's like, you know, oh, look, it's sort of the Lictor and we're still chugging through the mountains. You know, it's not like (laughs) it's not like appointment podcasting or anything like that. Right, right. Well, Michael Andredrisi chimed in on Reddit with some very interesting points. When we did the Hildegrin chapter, Craig, I kind of got the idea that Dorcas knew about Avern battles already, but Michael's mm-hmm. comment made me question my understanding. And I, so I reread the chapter and I think he might be right. He sees the Avern battles as a quite recent invention, a new addition to the sanguinary fields. He says, initially we figure it to be a super ancient custom, something from the earliest days of the autarkial age, but Cass's husband says he saw them planting Averns for the first time, which means they were possibly put there in the last 40 years. Mm -hmm. I could fight him on this, I think, but Still, there are other things. He he points out the spectators have seen people fight with them, but nobody shouted advice to Severian about handling them without gloves. Kind of an important thing, as it turned out. And here's the deal. Not even the E-Force, the judges, say anything about it. And I'll add that the E-Force don't even know enough to be shocked, as Agilus was, that Severian didn't die from the Avern strike. So, yeah, I think Avern battles are recent. Yeah, it's weird because I assumed that that was the standard thing. But then I went back and carefully read again. And we never hear any mention of like seeing a couple Averns up over the crowd mm-hmm. everywhere else. But Asia seems to say, and Severian does like he, she says and ties it to a pole to keep it away from him, mm-hmm. you know, as if there's a, a tradition of these things. And when they're at the end, nobody seems particularly scared or, or to remark on the Avern at all. So right. it seems commonplace. But I guess you could say that could be Wolf not, you know, just thinking through every single detail of something. But yeah, it is, it is weird that people seem surprised by how the Avern works when they're hanging around. Although, and the, the guy also does say, you know, depending on the type of combat or weapons chosen, the innkeeper says, you know, mm-hmm. people talk about, you know, the strategy based on the type of weapon. So it's right. not like the Avern is the only thing that people can do. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. But I wonder if the only people using them to fight were Agilus and whoever he was fighting with. I mean, if you're going to challenge people to a duel, be sure to challenge them with a weapon that they've never used before. Yeah, but it makes sense. And I do wonder if there's something significant to the fact that the old man saw them planting it or why mm-hmm. this would only happen within the scope of Severian's you know, very recent history. And yeah. I don't know. I don't have a good wow, reason Wow, wow, yeah. That's but if you did, for it to be something that's really only connected to Severian and, you know, his immediate parents or grandparents time or something like that. Then yeah, now I'm imagining Severian leaving the Botanic Gardens and the people all coming up to dig up the Avern. Right, <laughs> right. And the only other weirdness could be if actually time doesn't work normally there. And so maybe, you know, yeah, he saw them planning them one day, but he came back the next day and actually it was 300 years later. Mm, or something. Yeah. Who, but who, who knows? knows? That's, yeah. that's getting weird. Well, Michael also hmm. has a theory that Severian can draw energy from the ground or around him. 
His suggestion is that that's might be how Severian resurrects himself. I think this qualifies as a curiositus earthus, but you know, it's not randomly sourced. I, I can't dispute it, but uh, I mean, I don't know. He says there is this alternate energy source thing going on from time to time in Severian's narrative. The most direct is when he shorts out the big ship while trying to revive the murdered steward in Earth of the New Sun. But there are hints before that and other hints after. On the big ship, it's presumably a problem that Severian cannot access the White Fountain, it being you know in a different universe of Bria, while he is in Yeset. So somehow he draws from the nearest alternate source, which is the ship. On Earth, it might be that Severian cannot access the White Fountain if it is not above the horizon, and at these times he must draw from the nearest alternative source. In the Earth of the New Sun, Severian heals Declan using the power of Earth in chapter 29. Huh. Regarding Severian's resurrection, he says, I do not know if the dueling grounds are an energy source because of all the blood spilled there, but that sacrifice economy model is possible. So, you know, what do you think, Greg? Um, the only time it seems to really matter is in Earth of the New Sun, when there's just, you know, but there they're in a completely different universe. So that's the one time. The stuff about it being below the horizon, I, I just don't see really evidence to make that so specific mm -hmm. um although it would be it does fit really well with the idea that in, there's also the thing in earth that you know he doesn't necessarily have his power until for the first time mm -hmm. right that the, yeah. the horizon rises and there's the sun and and that seems that seems there but these other times i just don't know i mean it seems to like the direction of the power coming from um doesn't really matter for the most part. I mean, in earth, it seems to become an issue, but here it's not as big a deal. Like, I guess, I guess my worry is that we're kind of working backward from something that he played with a lot more in earth, but didn't really develop in a specific way. Like I'd have to go back in and figure out, okay, well, when exactly do these various things happen? Like hmm. it's nighttime, isn't it? When he's in the cave, the right. eight men's cave. And yet he's still able to use the power there, like the, the claw glows and everything. And I forget when he, is it evening when he goes back to the hovel in Thrax and either cures or saves the little girl? Um, right. Yeah. And they right. don't talk about, I think it's evening there because he's had, had his, he's, he's escaping at that point and he's going back up there. And, and I don't think they really mention the earth stuff there. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it'd be interesting, but I don't really know that it's necessary. And when, when we get to that in earth there, it has much more to do with time and dimensionality rather than space. And, right. and like direction and the mechanics that way. Like even the thing about this, about it rising on that first day, that's also the first time in quote unquote history, he would have been able to see it because it's happening like way in the past. Right. And so that's kind of more a symbolic thing than mechanical to me, it seemed like. Well, the, the event with Declan that he references, Severian says he can feel the power of earth coursing through his legs and his hands, but that could just be an aspect of, you know, the, the, the white fountain. Yeah. Right? That, and, that and it's true that it is true that the fountain brings life to earth. So, you know, yeah. there's always the implication that 
you know, any sort of power or life or whatever that earth has is coming from the fountain anyway. Yeah. Well, I'm going to let, at least I'm, I, I felt that way. Well, I'm going to let this one stew a little. Sorry, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> well, he also says that when Agilus says that in my country, men can't be naked except in the presence of women, he's quote, playing the role of the barbarian warrior from the far frontier. That's believable since mm-hmm. it probably sounded pretty weird in Nessus where people think nothing of being on stage naked for dramatic roles. Yeah. Last episode, we got a comment about Severian's broad wine knowledge. And Michael also had some thoughts about that. He says, Severian's surprising knowledge of wine strikes me as being a sign of the vast culture gap between his society and ours. He lives in a place where even a lowly torturer has a wine vocabulary so advanced we suspect him of being an expert. He compares it to Severian's general vocabulary, where he writes of quite common words like urticate, salpinks, and bordereau. <laughs> also on Reddit, Cody Martin has an alternate theory about Agia changing attitude about Severian going to the duel. He says... It seems to me that Agia is very concerned that Severian will actually kill Agilus. Her shouting, Severian of the Torturers, Severian of the Citadel, the Tower of Pain, death, death has come, can easily be interpreted as her mocking Severian. But I believe she's trying to warn Agilus. It only gradually dawned on Agia throughout the day that Severian wasn't just an armager in disguise. If the torturers are associated with the military, then it's reasonable to fear that Severian possesses enough martial prowess to defeat Agilus. And as for Agia shouting sacrilege when Severian resurrects, he says an older definition of the word is crime of stealing what is consecrated to God. If the claw is glowing in Severian's sabertash, as James said it was, then Agia is shouting an accusation. She hopes to call attention to this mysterious light that only she's noticed and save Agilus's life by getting Severian arrested for stealing the claw. Well, you know, stealing the claw would be sacrilege. But that still kind of suggests that she knows a lot more about the claw than we realize, more than the pelerines. Yeah, and it also seems like a lot of thought process for her to go through in that sort of immediate shocked instant, Hmm. right? Which is a smart cookie, Um, but still. She is. is. So all of that could be. I mean, I will say I do like the idea that she's screaming that stuff out to warn Agilus. Uh That, honestly, it hadn't occurred to me. And I think it's because some of the stuff... Their, their conversation around there is sets you up to think that, yeah, she's mocking him rather yeah. than, than that. Well, it's, it's, it's really tough because really her motives of almost everything she does, except for trying to take the sword after she thinks Severian is dead, almost everything she does is kind of ambiguous. Right. Yeah. But as far as the sacrilege goes, I like that. I just don't really think it's realistic given everything else that Mm -hmm. we know about them right now. And then plus, like you say, it does mean that she really would have a whole lot more knowledge about the claw and the religion and the legends about it than we ever really see that she does. Yeah. Although she, I mean, she knows a lot more than she should, but that's, I mean, if she thought it was that powerful, it seems like maybe she'd be more interested in like (laughs) just straight up grabbing it out of his saber tash. It's a really good point. Um, that's the other thing, too, that struck me is why in all of this did she never 
actually just reach in and grab it and run? Like at what point did she decide that it's better to go through this whole process rather than just, oh yeah, well hopefully he'll die and we'll get his stuff and, and the gem too. I mean, I don't know if it would just seem, well, I guess that way you get rid of him, but yeah, you, you know, if it's like, it seems like if you do have the chance to get the most powerful religious gem in the world and you do know about it, what it supposedly really is, then that would outweigh the risk of going through the whole process of the scam. But yeah, but yeah. theoretically she does. Yeah. If she really knows that it's that powerful. Right. Oh, Cody also cites evidence from chapter 19 that Asia has complicated feelings about Severian, which I absolutely agree. Obviously that chapter reads in ways like a legitimate meet cute between two people. And then Ubicon plus ones, Michael's and Cody's reading, and downvotes much of my reading. He says, she may have liked him, that is Sev, at first, or thought he was good for a laugh, but certainly by the time of the note in the end, she's not just gone off of him. She's afraid of him for Agilis. Team Asia. <laughs> okay, yeah. now you've gone to the dark side. And regarding the charge of sacrilege, he says she's protesting that he is coming back from the dead and thus usurping the increates rights of power over life and death. This doesn't even need to have the claw glowing, in my opinion. She's saying he's cheating. Okay, well, you know, yeah, he didn't yeah. die. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, if you're going to take a surface reading of, of Ajia, that's why she hates him, because he, you know, Betray yeah. everybody by not dying. So, a Bowen Kaj on Reddit, however, is willing to ride a bit on my first Severian reading of Sev and Ashia's relationship. He, she, asks whether my curiositus earthus that Ashia's apparent developing feelings for Severian are bleeding over from a previous universe cycle could imply the same about Dorcas, that first Severian also had a relationship with. Dorcas, either romantic or strictly familial. He says that once you embrace these implications of the first Severian theory, then how can we trust how any character really feels about Severian? Well, that would be tricky, right? Mm -hmm. Since it would assume she's resurrected the first time around or that she didn't die. I mean, it's possible to have first Severian who is not performing the miracles. I began following the threads on Bowen Kaja's theory. And I just kept ending up in a tangle. You know, I get the general worry about all these different people, but I think that would, if you stick with it for the people who are closest to Severian and who mm -hmm. maybe had really strong relationships with him, like Asia, you know, then if you pull that out to maybe Dorcas and maybe Jolenta, but, but I think probably we're talking just Thecla Dorcas and Asia for that mm -hmm. kind of like, mix up of memories or something right. like that probably. But yeah, I still get the concern, but I just, maybe I just don't think it's as big a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, his next idea is about the bells. Bowen Kaj wonders whether the bells symbolize a time in Severian's life when something from Yesud is about to intercede into our world in order to change the timeline, the heroes or first Severian or the white fountain, whatever. And I, kind of agree with that. And I alluded to some of that in our talk with John Crowley. I don't think it's even arguable that Wolf isn't using them as a literary signal of some kind. They come up in 
earth of the new sun as the world is collapsing around their ears. On Facebook, Sean Michael Robinson was surprised that we both came to the conclusion that Cadro of the 17 Stones was Agilus. He came around to agreeing with us, though. But then he points out that the similarity between Cadro and Casdo suggests that they could be twin names. Well, I find that intriguing. You put that with the Casdo-Dorcas connection, and we have a new triangle that I don't know what to do with, but it seems like a line of connectivity that it just feels unlikely to be incidental. I mean, Wolf pays a lot of attention to names. Yeah. Ian C. Smith laid off listening to our sweet voices, Craig, but lately he's been <laughs> back with a vengeance. He got up to chapter 19, the Fiacre race, the Botanic Gardens chapter that we did with the writer Fabio Fernandez. And he's got a lot of thoughts about that one. First, it's about Raucho. Like me, Ian is suspicious of any extraordinary coincidences. Mm. Bumping into Raucho sets his antenna on alert. <laughs> he asks, is the guy in the other fiacre really Raucho? Or is narrator Severian lying about this to tell a good story or simply getting it very wrong? You know, all armagers look the same. He proposes a possibility that Severian has a degree of, well, not face blindness, but identity agnosia, and proposes that that could explain the Dro- Rosha mix-up. Yeah. But he leaves that aside and says, if it is Raucho, then that definitely can't be a coincidence. Surely he must have some deeper identity and role in the plot. Yeah. Yeah. We talked a lot about that. Mm-hmm. And I think that that it may be, it, it very well could be. I still am kind of, I like the idea that somebody else brought up that he actually, and we talked about this, about mm-hmm. him being Syriaca's husband, didn't we? Didn't we mention yes, that? Yeah, yeah, we so, did. Yeah, just because it's fun and it just means that her husband's kind of this this guy who may be really a big deal out in the, <laughs> the boonies, but he's just kind of a nobody in, in town. Uh, but he's still like, I'll just cheat on his wife and stuff. Right. And I kind of like that. It's just a fun backstory. Right. But otherwise, I'm not really sure what to make of Racho because we just don't, we don't get much else from him. So it's harder to know what else is there. Um, and the way that I kind of make sense of it is that it's one of those places where I think Wolf is trying to get us to pay attention to circumstances and things in Severian's life that make certain connections start to come out. I mean, a certain kind of synchronicity or something like that. And some may be more meaningful than others, but mm. he's kind of piling those on a little bit there. Yeah. Maybe. It's also just a convenient way for him to know like what rank Racho is. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. That's a good point. Is. Yeah. Still, if you find yourself in the middle of a complicated manipulation, there's a good chance that you are involved in a complicated manipulation. And yeah. everything about that race to me does feel like a manipulation. It seems all very just so. Suddenly he runs into the uh, Pellerines Cathedral. Mm-hmm. He ends up, he walks out with the claw. But, you know, just like you, I can't imagine yet exactly what his bigger involvement would be. I mean, one question, where does he go after Sev and Ajia don't show up at the end of the race? There is a lot hanging there. Yeah. Yeah. Ian also asks, 
what if the gardens are in fact just the manifestation of a time-space portal into Severian's reality, a nexus where people from Severian's time and space can travel to other times and spaces and the other way around? And he says, this would throw a new perspective on Agia's conversation about the purple plant escaping from the gardens. Perhaps many other denizens of other worlds escape to Nessus out of the gardens. And he adds including Agia herself. Holy crap, Craig. (laughs) The truth is, Craig, that, as you know, I do think the mirrors are a kind of nexus between universes and times. Mm -hmm. I think that is an important reason for why the adjutting universes are so similar. And I think we'll delve more into these mechanics in the novel There Are Doors. Ian you're going to encounter more of our theorizing about the traversing between times and worlds when you get to the jungle hut chapter and the Hildegrin chapter, but the plant escaping, that's a good point. That's an excellent new theory coming from mm-hmm. an entirely different direction about Asia and, and yeah. maybe Agilus and Hathor. Ah, and I'll tip our hand about our travels through the corridors of time and say it's going to make our future conversations about the chapters where we talk about Agilus and Hathor seem a little peculiar, since we will not have yet heard this theory when we are discussing them. So I hope you all keep this in mind, because I find this one really incredibly inviting. But Ian's not done. He doesn't find Severian's forgetting in his fugue state to be a problem uh, with his claim to an incorruptible memory, and I think I agree with that. He also says, I think his extreme reaction here can be explained simply by the fact that it's the first garden he visits and the famous impressionability which makes him such a good candidate for being the new son, such as the effect of him consuming Thecla's flesh compared to everyone else. He's referring to Uh, to the fact that Thecla remains present with him rather than fading away. And he goes on, anything he chooses to layer on top of that may be purely of his own making. Hmm. Maybe. Yeah, it may have been, but I, yeah, I know I'd need to think about it a little more to decide if it's quite that way. I do think it's understood. Am I right about this? That the reason Severian has a different experience after consuming Thecla so that she didn't fade away and such was due to his incorruptible memory and his previous intense relationship with her. That's what I think. Yeah. Yeah. Because for everyone else, those experiences pass away and they may be like emotionally bonding Mm -hmm. or they may give some kind of insight, but it definitely seems like they do it to all be, it's like an an initiation, right? Where now they've all done something, you know, awful. And so they're all now part of a, a bonding kind of thing, but it's not really about getting information. I mean, maybe it is for some of them halfway, but it's not in any sense like Severian does. Yeah. Still, I, there are a lot of supposings that Severian makes about himself, the claw, the people around mm-hmm. him that are wrong, I believe, and that he never comes to a truthful understanding about them. Yeah. So this book does permit theories outside the, you know, what supposedly clear explanations uh, within reason. We wouldn't be doing this if it didn't. (laughs) Uh, Ian says he's on a quest to find examples of Severian forgetting something in every chapter. 
He thinks mm-hmm. Severian initially not remembering where he's seen the curator's robes before is just the kind of thing that he's thinking of. I, I used to have a theory that every time Severian bragged about his memory, there would be some kind of instance like the Rosha Drota episodes. It's, yeah. That's what happens. You know, the first time he brags about his memory in the first page of chapter one. You've talked about that. I think Roy Lackey talks about that too somewhere really? way back in the year. Well, that might have been has, me. <laughs> he said, I know. And I don't know if it's, if I'm remembering you or, or yeah. something, but I know, yeah. I know someone. Ian promises to post a table at some point with memory lapses and chapters. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Next, Ian stops preaching and he starts meddling. He's <laughs> not nuts about the way I pronounce Asia. And I should say there is a conversation with Mark Aramini coming up in a couple of months where he also disparages it. Ian notes... I've known two women called Agia in real life and both pronounced it Agia, which is really odd because they were both Hispanic. So you'd think the G would be usually soft. Hmm. Agia. Really? I'd have never guessed that. Mark thinks the pronunciation should be Agia and Agilis. I don't know. Ian has two real-world examples that pronounce it Agia. Maybe I should change my ways. Huh. On the sub try that. On that subject, Marcus Gavea, who has helped us out with pronunciations in the past, offered a YouTube pronunciation of Gerloese or Gerlos. Uh, I've I've always pronounced it like Socrates. Most English speakers, I suspect, pronounce it Gerlos. Well, Marcus points out it's not Greek, it's French. And then he offered a YouTube example. And he pronounces it like this. Gurlo. Anyway, it's uh, Gurlo. Hmm. We were, were we talking about this outside the recording the other day about how I still, Gurlo's is just easier. And I don't yeah. know why, but you, you like you just can't, the ES must not be. Forgotten. I know it's, it's, it's there. It's there. It's so but yeah, girl. I, I mean, in American accent, it's girlo. It's, it's. I'm not going to pretend to do it with a French accent. I guess I'm just going to have to go with the official pronunciation here. From now on, it's girlo. This next one is really good. We got an email from a listener we haven't heard from before, Euclid Julius Jade, and she has awesome. By the way. Yeah, <laughs> and she has some nice things to say about the podcast. That really meant a lot to us. She says, I love the podcast. And though I am a member of the Facebook group and subreddit, I am more given to lurking than participating. Trust me, Euclid, Craig can relate. She says, I adore the podcast. Thank you for the joy your labor of love gives me. Here's to many more. Hmm. So I don't know how, Craig, but my microphone has gotten all wet. There must be a leak in the ceiling or something that's getting all rusty. Here, let me get this tissue and clean it off. She goes on, I've gone back and forth about sending this email. I am also still a wolf novice. I only finished the new sun for the first time five months ago, and I am rather nervous about throwing my hat in the ring. Well, look, Euclid, please do not hesitate to do that. We read them all. We enjoy them all. We're completionists in that way. She says, but your discussion of 
of Agia has spurred me to bravery. Hurrah! I've been fascinated by her from the start. Part of this, I think, is that I myself am a young woman, and I cannot help but interpret her through the lens of my own experience. Well, I got to tell you the truth. That is an insight we could definitely use around here, right? Yeah. I would not go so far as to say this is a theory, because it's more of a general feeling than a solid argument. I agree that it doesn't feel like the death of Agius, Agilis, I don't know, is enough to motivate Agia in the world of the new sun. It seemed odd to me from my first read. They tried to con Severian and failed and paid a fair price for that failure. That is the way of Earth. Upon my subsequent reading, I saw something else. Agia seems to be a woman who has always been poor. Being poor is being powerless in Severian's world as in ours, but Agia has a power to wield her sexual draw. As you mentioned it recently, there is a point where Severian says, uh, well, heck, I'll just read it. I loved her with a love thirsty and desperate. I felt that we two might commit some act so atrocious that the world seeing us would find it irresistible. (laughs) Yeah. I I just like that part. I just think it's... (laughs) (laughs) That is quite an attestation of a love of someone that you were really only close to for a day. Yeah. I agree that Agia feels the same thing. Agia is accustomed to controlling men, like Hathor. All that matters is that Agia believes she controls Hathor. Severian is a challenge. As their day together goes on, it must become clear to Agia, who is by no means stupid, that Severian is educated and capable, despite his naivete, and an ally worth having. She wants to have him in her pocket, and pulls out all the stops to do so. We, as the reader, know that Severian wants Agia. For Agia, though, he seems distracted and uninterested, wandering in the garden, going off on tangents about other women, living in his head instead of getting wrapped up in her seduction. He argues with her and ignores her. He slows down instead of speeding up. He brings up Thecla all day long when Dorcas appears. He focuses almost entirely on her. I think this is the crux of the matter. Severian rejects and humiliates Agia, and she absolutely cannot stand it. Agia is reckless at the end because the game is almost up and the win conditions have changed. No longer is it about killing and robbing Severian. It's about possessing and mastering him. And this is why Agia doesn't destroy the note herself. It's not about the note. It's about making Severian do as she tells him to. She wants to win. And ultimately, Euclid thinks the greatest betrayal was when Severian struck her on the sanguinary field. She says, at that moment, Severian has done more than hit her. He's robbed her of more than her brother and her shop. He's robbed her of the only power she has ever had. Dorcas even warned Severian that he should not have struck Agia, understanding herself the kind of woman that she is. Well... As everyone knows, I essentially agree with this, even though I might not have put it so well. And I think that is, to some extent, what Severian's aside means about love and desire being two sides of the same coin. And of course, it is often said that the same is true of love and hate. I like that because it does emphasize something that I think I don't really think about too much, and that is the way that he does smack her around. 
and not just physically, but also the way that towards the end, he starts to get really dismissive of her even. And right. all of that complicated attitude does add another layer um, that goes beyond just killing her brother. And given the kind of strong willed person that she is, that it's a good point that may have even had more of an effect than um, killing her brother. And then also it may actually change her hatred towards Severian is not so much just that he killed her brother, although that's part of it. And so it's not family revenge that she's after that. What she's really after is revenge for the way that he's kind of shamed her mm. and not just undercut her plans, but actually destroyed them in the process. And so, yeah, that's a bigger thing. And I, I, I like, I actually like that better. And that in some ways makes me feel like her reaction maybe isn't quite as overdone as I think I've been putting it before, because it does make things much more personal to hear mm -hmm. rather than the just, you know, you, you killed my brother, prepare to die kind of right. thing. <laughs> well, she wraps up her curiosity's earth with a little softening about how this is just her interpretation and she hopes it'll widen the conversation. Oh no. Don't do that, Euclid. <laughs> Take a page from Mark Aramini's book. You said it. That's the way it happened. There's really no reason to discuss it anymore. It's time for everyone to line up and offer their plus ones. <laughs> the argumentative rhetoric. Of That's right. He should write his own Strunk and White. It's like <laughs> there was the old Strunk and White. Now there's the new one. <laughs> Strunk, White, and Aramini. This is how we all become great wolf authorities. As the false Thecla said, what is the autark but a man who believes himself autark and makes others believe by the strength of it? Thanks for the input, Euclid Jade. I hope to hear more from you on the other platforms as well. On Facebook, Adam Roth came to the table with a Fursivarian Curiositus Earthus, and he also finds it credible that Agilis, Ag Agilis? Yeah, it must be Agilis. If, it were, if I'm going to say Ag Agia, then it must be Agilis. Yeah, if it's that way. Although Agilis, Agilis, right? It should Agilis, be. Yeah. Those are all very possible. And by the way, I didn't say before, but people are making good points about it. I think this is just one where I think I, I actually have changed how I do Triskly a lot. I don't say just Triskel anymore. Mm. But with Agia and Agilis, I'm not sure I'll do it. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> probably not going to happen. Just like I, I have to do Inire as Inire, mm -hmm. even if it turns out that that's totally wrong. That's I think just... that sounds about right. I, I've been converted myself on that one. But I've on this uh, Agia, I've just wandered into the valley alone. I didn't check to see whether anyone was following me. But, <laughs> but anyway, um, Adam Roth, he finds it credible that Agilis is wearing a mask to make himself look like Agia. And that's a very divisive theory. It seems that you either think it must be true or that it can't be true. And I have to admit, the text supports both of them simultaneously. I've linked to his uh, Curiositas Earthus in the show notes, but it's neat. He suggests that the first Severian encountered Agia at the Witch's Tower. The thing is that, and this came up when we were talking about the maid in the Catherine's Day ceremony. You remarked, Craig, that you thought all the stories people came up with about the maid, who is nothing but a few sentences in the whole mm -hmm. book, those stories might be the whole point. And this is related, in my opinion. This was 
never my favorite wolf novel, as I've said. It didn't even place. I mean, look, it's a wolf novel. I esteemed it highly. But, you know, it was well down from some of the other ones that, that Wolf had done. Because I had come to believe that Wolf arbitrarily occulted so many pieces of the board that it was not possible to tell anyone's motivations in the story. And I still think that's true to some extent. Not as much as I used to think, but still true. But now I understand why he's doing it, I think. And it's improved my esteem for the story because I have come around to believe that the reason Wolf was resisting writing a final chapter summarizing the end of Severian's arc is that this story is not about Severian or anyone else detailed in this story. It's about that fellow that Severian talked about in the last chapter of Citadel of the Autark. We are told that he went to Yesid. We are told that he becomes the head of the day. It's pretty strongly hinted that he becomes the conciliator. This guy casts his shadow on the wall of this story, and Severian and everyone else are those walls, that shadow, the true shadow of the torturer. We are expected to participate in this story, to attempt to tell the story from those shadows. So, Craig, I think Adam Roth and Euclid Jane and others are using this book as intended. It's it's not a postmodernist activity because I think Wolf had a very specific idea of the exact bodies that were casting those shadows. Mm -hmm. But Wolf trusts the readers to work it out on their own or to try and fail. Let me put it this way. I have more fun with video games after the main story missions are complete. When you can just wander around in the world and shoot people, hunt deer, whatever. Wolf gave us a story that is worth coming back to over and over in order to try again to assemble these pieces in new ways. There will never be a consensus about this book. Yeah. But the people who see it as mostly resolved haven't yet started playing the game. They haven't got beyond laying the chalk lines and setting up the concession booths. So (laughs) I'm just saying, good job. You're doing, you're reading this book just as it's intended to be read. (laughs) All right. So I guess we're going to move on to the hospital room and watch Severian recuperate. Yeah. Exciting stuff. And um, (laughs) I'm glad we had a lot of comments this time because we, uh, this is probably the shortest we've ever talked about one chapter, I think. So, although we did cheat, we talked a lot about, about it last time. So let's bring it on. Chapter 28, Carnifex. Okay. Now it is the morning of the next day, roughly 24 hours since Severian had breakfast with Talos and Bald Anders, 15 days since he was elevated to journeyman. Severian is in the lazarette. A lazarette is roughly a hospital. But remember that until recent times, there wasn't a whole lot doctors could do for the seriously ill. So it's really a place set aside for quarantining. It comes from the name of a place like that in Venice that was sponsored by the Church of Santa Maria de Nazareth, that is, Mary of Nazareth. But it was influenced by its similarity to the word Lazar, or Lazaro, meaning someone with leprosy or some other infectious disease. So, Lazaret. And we're going to see another Lazaret, of course, in Citadel, which is more of a field hospital, too. So exactly right, and that's where, of course, the uh, the story contest happens. Mm-hmm. 
So this lazarette is a long, high-ceilinged room. Severian and the sick and the injured are laying on narrow beds. Twin-sized beds are smaller, I guess. The head of the bed is against the wall. Severian is naked. He says that for a long time, as sleep, or perhaps it was death, tugged at his eyelids, he moved his hand over his body, searching for injuries that he doesn't find. He's kind of disconnected from his situation. He assumes his clothes and possessions are lost. He says, I wondered, as I might have wondered of someone in a song, how I could live without clothing or money, how I should explain to Master Palamon the loss of the sword and the cloak he had given me. And the fact that he thinks about himself as like a character in a story or in a song is it's getting to that distance that he feels from himself and that dislocation. Right. Right. So, and I think that's there too with like, it was sleep or was it death? You know, we know he hasn't at this point in the, in the narrative, he hasn't had Dorcas explain to him the whole thing about how it looked like he died for a second. Mm -hmm. And so we're still getting that sense of, just the feeling of dislocation, subjectively, Severian. An ape with the head of a dog runs down the aisle, pauses to look at him, and ran on. Apparently, baboons live wild in this part of Nessus. But this is one of those monkey references that theorists associate with Father Aniri's monkey face. Now, that being said, do you think this was a hallucination? Or is he truly seeing something here? Because that never comes up again. We never see this creature. I think he's being checked on. <laughs> I don't know how this is Father Aniri. Maybe th- he has the same kind of shape-changing powers as Zadkiel. Heck, maybe he is Zadkiel. But I think he's being checked on. There's no reason to mention this. There's no reason for him to stop and look at him and then go on. That's what I think. Fair enough. And at this point, it seems like it might just be an illness kind of hallucination. But then once we know so much about eight people and ape-like things later on with Aniri, yeah, then you can come back and this could be a clue right. that he's being looked at, checked in on, yep. Uh, there's also a passage that receives no notice ever. Quote, that seemed no stranger to me than the light that passing through a window I could not see fell upon my blanket. Yeah, I don't remember people mentioning this before, but it definitely seems like otherworldly light that's coming, maybe from... uh portal or a hall or a corridor of time maybe that's been used to come through here. But yeah, I think that's definitely something that we're supposed to be thinking is happening. Is it a light like the light of the claw or the light of the, that bulb in father Aniri's mirror chamber? Could be. That would make sense. If it was the kind of light from the, the mirrors, that makes a certain sense. The only other thing I could think of is if it's just talking about the corridors of time, then could it just be daylight that's coming through the, the, from a, a different sun at the time could be, but I think that probably the most likely thing, especially given that we've already heard the tale of father Neary's mirrors at this point, that yeah, it could be mirror travel. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's where the baboon went off to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One other thing that suggests that if, that if all this stuff is not just a hallucination, then we definitely here get the closest thing we're going to have to something like an eerie looking in on him or manipulating him or even watching him from this far in the early part of the story. And we know later on that we're going to find out the Undines were following him, but we never, apart from this, get a super specific 
piece of evidence that Anire was sort of having eyes on him the whole time. This is, I think, the closest that we get to that idea that he's being watched, manipulated, or at least followed. Well, we do find out at the end that Rudisand is working for Anire. Yeah, I mean, other than him, but but I was trying to think of any other times where it just seems like random images or random places where someone might be, be doing something. Rudisand is still like one person who's an official role who pops up just a couple places, but this is like a random hospital in a random place where, you know, who knew that Severian was going to get attacked or be in a duel and end up in the hospital and things yeah. like that. It does feel very similar to that night after his elevation when Master Malrubius and maybe the Autark are checking in on him. Mm-hmm. Now, it could be that the sun is up, but to Severian still recuperating, it looks dark, I guess. Or it could be something else. Anyway, he finally falls back to sleep. When he wakes up again, he has initially forgotten all that has happened. He thinks he's in the apprentice's dormitory, that he's a captain of the apprentices still, and everything has been a dream. This is like those dreams that you're back in school. Severian says he has this dream all the time. Then he opened his eyes and saw the plaster ceiling instead of the metal ceiling that the tower has. There's a guy next to him covered in bandages, He starts to get out of bed, and then he sees Dorcas asleep, sitting on the floor with her back against the wall. She's using the brown mantle as a blanket. Terminus Est is on her lap, and his other possessions are with her. We get a list of his clothes. Boots and hose, breeches, cloak, belt with attached saber tash. He tries to get the sword without waking Dorcas, but she murmurs and clings to it, so he just leaves it there. Good, good, Dorcas. (laughs) The hose and breeches is an interesting thing because it definitely puts us back in a little bit of a different image. And honestly, you're rarely going to see pictures of Severian wearing (laughs) hose and breeches. They're usually giving him full pants, often leather looking pants, but hose and breeches, that's a that's a different style. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to imagine. I've never seen anyone draw him that way, but it's clearly the way it looks. A lot of other patients are already away and they stare at him because, you know, they know what a Carnifex is because everyone knows that. No one speaks to him. At the end of this long room, there's a door to steps that are leading to a courtyard with destriers. The courtyard has something so strange to him, he thinks he might still be dreaming. Quote, the kynocephalus was climbing upon the crenellations of the wall. Crenellations are notches in the wall. A kynocephalus means dog head, like the head of Cerberus, right? The kynocephalus seems to look like a vine with blossoms, but it's really an animal. And Severian tosses some trash or gravel at it or something. And it, quote, bared teeth as impressive as Triskelis. Remember, Triskelis has finger long teeth. Mm -hmm. So do you think this is the same creature? Is this the ape-like? creature with the head of a dog? No, honestly, I hate to say it. It doesn't sound like me, but I think it's just color. (laughs) This is a very strange place. (laughs) That was the only thing that when you look it up and you find out about the the possible dog-headed thing, but was was it just a loose animal and he thought it was actually looking at him? Don't know. A trooper in a hauberk. A hauberk is a chainmail tunic. A trooper enters the courtyard from the building to get something out of his saddlebag. 
on one of the destriers. So Severian asks him where they are. Turns out he's in the Hall of Justice, which is some kind of fortress. The trooper invites him to come with him to the commissary for some food. And that's when Severian realizes that he's starving. Right. And also finding out that he's in this Hall of Justice and that there are soldiers around means that he's probably in a military hospital too, that the Lazarus is probably that. Now, this is the first time we've gotten any sort of real sense that the soldiers are around or something about Nessus has a standing army. We've certainly got mentions of that and warriors and, and talks about a war off to the north, but this is the first time that we've actually seen it come close to Severian, really. And I think that's in some ways is foreshadowing of what Citadel is going to be all about when we get there. But I don't know that Severian quite well, I guess he does. I guess in some ways Severian starts to realize how the, his world is a little bit more military as he learns about and talks to the people here. But it definitely flavors Nessus a little bit more. Like I feel like when you first read it, Nessus still feels a little bit more fantasy-like and you're in sort of a, a wondrous world of strange adventures. But now that you're interacting with the army pretty quickly, I think things get a little more gritty right there. because you're Yeah, it's looking a little bit more like Starship trooper or something like that yeah yeah and that it's that there's a certain sort of real threat to this war that isn't just you know something that's happening far away in a different part of the land yeah and i guess it's the hall of justice this is kind of a jail slash courthouse slash police station yeah not the justice league but wouldn't that be cool (laughs) they go down a dark hallway to a room at a lower level than the Lazarus and much darker. So it sounds like it's underground or it could be that they don't put windows on the lower levels. There's 40 to 60 Demarchi. We we discussed Demarchi before. They're eating lunch. It's now midday. They're eating fresh bread, beef, and boiled greens. The trooper advises him to just tell the cooks he was ordered to come here to eat. Remember, Severian is dressed in his tower uniform. It's unusual, but the trooper is treating him as someone who belongs in the Hall of Justice. And he probably does. This is, like I said, a building that's a prison as well as a courthouse. That's why it's a fortress, just as the Manichin has to defend against invaders, potentially. The cooks just serve him food, but the Demarchi are really curious about him. They ask him all sorts of questions. What's your name? Where do you come from? The tower? What's your rank among the torturers? They assume the guild is like the army with ranks. Where's your axe? The woman with me is watching it. Well, be careful. She might run away with it. If it were Asia, you know, she might, but Dorcas won't. You can take bread to the woman under your cloak. She won't be allowed in the commissary. All the older soldiers are supporting and feeding women themselves or have. If not currently, then they do it from time to time. Severian says that these women are camp followers of what is perhaps the most useful and least dangerous kind. (laughs) They supported these women while they were fighting in the North last summer. They've been in Nessus all winter, where they serve as a quasi-police. We've had a hint that the Demachi serve as both soldiers and police. Now it's summer again, and they're going to go North in a week to fight. The women... When the men go back to Nessus, the women go back to their villages to stay with their families. These villages are in the north. The women can't keep up with the men when they're going south to Nessus. They're they're traveling 15 leagues a day. A league is how far you can walk in an hour. So maybe four miles or so, six and a half kilometers. 
So on the way home, they travel 60 miles a day, 100 kilometers. Consequently, the camp followers, which probably includes businesses where everyone can buy food, they can't keep up. So everyone just goes home. And if a new company shows up in the area, then the women will get new men. So yeah, that's one of those things that is actually real that often happened, especially a long time ago, to have those camp followers and to have women that you would follow you around. That's something that even there are stories in the Civil War of things like that happening pretty often. I just thought it's interesting, the attitude there, like on the one hand, they seem very casual about these women, like, oh, and if they want to change people later on, they can do that. At the same time, though, they're like, oh, and by the way, take your woman bread. There's this sort of odd mix there with the soldiers of, you know, care for people, but also then a sort of weird sort of just distance of these relationships of just being casual things that change with the winds, literally. And But they have a sense of manners, what's good, what's what's decent and what he has to do. And yeah, it's it's weird. It's like manners for a certain thing and, you know, other things that get kind of hard. But I, I guess, you know, we were thinking about soldiers who are always on the move and in this harsh situation, then yeah, that's just, that's one of those places where I think if you're trying to tally up sort of all the different places where in the book, Severian or Wolf talks about attitudes with women or, or relationships towards women, that's one of the places where you could definitely see a really negative side if you want to. But then there's that one little moment that they throw in there of, by the way, here's how to break the rules so that you can actually take care of the people you care about. So, yeah. So the, the soldiers mentioned that they'd heard that they'd brought a Carnifex to the Lazaret last night who was half dead. Have you seen him? Severian says no. Now, if this is your first read, you're just like Severian. You don't know where he is. You don't know what happened after he passed out on the fields. When they say, hey, we heard they brought a Carnifex in, Severian says, I haven't heard anything about it. But of course, we know that that Carnifex that they heard they brought in, who was half dead, that was Severian. The Chiliarch had heard that there was a Carnifex in the area, so they sent them to retrieve him because they're going to need him in a day or two. That was pretty quick thinking. Severian doesn't know it yet, but they needed him because they have Agilus in custody for murder. And this is the kind of complicated pieces that Wolf has going in his stories all the time. They don't just happen on Severian and say, oh, we're going to need one of those, bring a, even a broken one. Instead, they were already looking for him when they found him laid out on the street with Dorcas. Right. Unless there's also the idea that when it just as we had heard there was a Carnifex around, I was like, well, who told you? <laughs> How did that piece of information get told? And if, you know, if Aniri is keeping tabs on him, that would be a certainly easy way to to get him. That's that's true. Brought in. It could be. It's but. But of course, he was all over. He was all over town, though, right? He was. I know, I know. But that's part of the thing. It's like he, the way that Wolf tells this. It could be again chance. It could be somebody following him and sort of setting things up and, and to get him. Uh, but there are lots of little details that let you read it a couple of ways at once, which is what makes it so fun and mysterious and odd. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So when he came back on a litter, at first the soldiers just assumed that they when the men who were bringing him had to rough him up to get him to come along with them. But no, they didn't. And they carried him back, like I said, on a litter. They say, they say you should check on him, Severian. Uh, maybe you know him. So Severian goes back to Dorcas to check on her and find out what happened. Severian's bothered about this whole section of his life being a blank slate. 
He says, I felt as we always feel when there is a whole sector of our lives that cannot bear light, that no matter how far the last question had been from one of the forbidden subjects, the next would pierce the heart of it. That's flowery, but maybe not especially insightful. I guess he's saying that he felt like the answers to what happened last night were just beyond his grasp, right? I think so. And we know too that the truth of it, I mean, he is right that the truth of what, even when Dorcas explains it to him, it doesn't explain it to him, right? He still at this point has no idea how he survived getting killed and and coming back. But I mean, he's going to get an explanation, uh, which is not a complete explanation and that it's going to, you know, the, the explanation leads to more questions, which is perfectly Wolfian, but also like he's saying here that sometimes the things that are most important to us, when we really try to investigate them, it always feels like the next question maybe will answer what's really going on. And of course it doesn't for a long time. <laughs> right. Oh, one, one other thing. I just always, I'll, I just also like that there he says, we, this is how we always feel when we have these deep, mysterious moments in our life that no light can penetrate. It's like, geez, how many of those moments do we have in our life? Right. <laughs> yeah, how common is that feeling for you, Severian? So Severian finds Dorcas standing by his bed. There's a cup of hot broth. Dorcas is so happy to see him that it makes him happy that she's so happy. He says, Quote, as though joy were as contagious as a pestilence. She assumed that he had died as she slept, and they took his body and clothes to bury. So as she eats the bread and broth, she explains everything that we talked about last time, how Severian came to be at the Lazarus. If you were a first-time reader, like I said, then you started this chapter as much in the dark as Severian. Finishing off the broth... Dorcas starts asking about the note in the inn the night before. She overheard the conversation. It wasn't obvious from the telling, but they were whispering everything to each other, Severian and Agia. She didn't ask about it before because if Severian found out anything about it, she didn't want Agia to know. Dorcas just dragged herself out of the lake after 40 years, but she's already a better judge of people than Severian. <laughs> Actually, Everybody seems to be a better judge of character than Severian. <laughs> Quote, I'm sure Asia could discover anything I discovered. I don't know her well, and in fact, I don't feel I know her as well as I know you, Dorcas. But I know her well enough to realize that she's much cleverer than I am. Dorcas doesn't think so. She says, she's the sort of woman who's good at making puzzles for other people but not at solving ones she didn't make herself. I think she thinks, I don't know, sideways, so no one else can follow it. She's the kind of woman people say thinks like a man, but those women don't think like real men at all. In fact, they think less like real men than most women do. They just don't think like women. The way they do think is hard to follow, but that doesn't mean it's clear or deep. What do you think about this? And this is a this is a naughty not not naughty bad but naughty like <laughs> like tied in knots kind of way of thinking because we have sort of assumptions that aren't really spelled out of what it actually means to think like a man or a woman, but then she doesn't think like either, but it's not deep or or something else. So I kind of like the idea of knots, yeah, that she it's complicated, but it's not deep. It's complicated, but it's not necessarily sophisticated, if that makes sense. Yeah. So that's could be well true. I mean, especially if you're someone who's trying to con other people, then yeah, you're 
you're thinking and, and you're moving in ways that aren't always going to totally make sense to other people because you're always working at cross purposes or, or doing something else. You're never just honestly open with someone. So it could be that. Um, and I think that's the easiest way to explain it. But if you want to push it and make it weird, then what would it mean to think sideways? It's just such a cool, weird way to describe how somebody thinks differently than other people. The, when I think sideways, I think not going towards the same goals as other people, like has her own goals that she's moving towards and doing it in with different purposes. So you're never really going to understand what she's doing unless you know what her whole plan is. And honestly, I think that fits really well with how we've tried to figure out you know, like certain things she does make sense, other things don't. And until we really know what she's after... Yeah, everything she does kind of seems to go off in perpendicular directions sometimes to what you'd expect. Thank you, Wolf, for explaining this without explaining anything. So. <laughs> exactly. So, But um, I also don't know what he means by thinking like men and women. And I feel like I should know something about that or like he's got something here because this is definitely – one chapter where we're pulling back and getting the first time that Severian and Dorcas can really be alone and honest with each other. And that gender dynamic is really important, but I don't really know what he thinks, what he's saying, if he is saying anything particular about thinking like a man or thinking like a woman. Well, if you ascribe this kind of attitude to the author, this would come close to probably people viewing Wolf himself as being sexist as the writing as being sexist in that he often is said, here's how you write believable women. You write them as a man and you make them a woman. And, you know, mm, arguably yeah. that's not necessarily how you do it. But Dorcas is sort of setting up that that's what people think is the case. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. It also may be that she's just using that as a way to explain to Severian that what he thinks is smarter, because he starts off by saying, Aji is cleverer than I am. And Dorcas is like, no, she's not. She's She just thinks in a different way than you do. It's not really... She just has an entire different logic. It just doesn't make it... Yeah, yeah. Just because you don't understand it doesn't mean that she's she's too smart for you. She's smarter, yeah. And I think really it kind of comes down to, no, she's actually just playing a different game. Mm -hmm. And she's playing her own game, which means that she looks weird and confusing, but it's really just that she's got her own little game that she's playing. Right. I think that's what Dorcas is saying. And that's probably, you know, honestly, that's a more mature read on people than Severian has. So Dorcas, just like you were saying, Dorcas is a better read of character than Severian. So yeah, I think that's it. But it's but I do just like the idea that yeah, Angie is still sideways, even if she's just got her own thing. There's something <laughs> off about. That. Yeah, well, yeah, I concur. Yeah. So. One other thing though that I, we haven't talked about is how committed to Severian Dorcas is already. We've already seen up to this point where she wants to stay with him and she wants to be close to him. And Severian feels a little protective for her. But this is the first time where we see her pretty much broken because she thought that. Severian was dead. And that's an intense connection to someone. And at first, I remember when I first read it, I was thinking, well, that's kind of unrealistic that she's already in love with this person. But then I started to think of it more like, oh, shoot, what's it called when, you know, a duck or a goose as a baby connects to the first thing it sees? Imprinting. Imprinting. Yeah. And so I was wondering, is it just more like she's imprinting on him because he's the first vaguely kind person that she knows and it's in, and she doesn't remember anyone else. And so that's the the source of this. Um, Cause I've always been interested in what are Dorcas's actual feelings for Severian? Are they legit or are they 
a mix of just sort of grasping to the only thing that seems kind and secure in a crazy world. Um, it's, I don't know. Well, I, th- I think she senses the love that she has for her grandchild or for her son to Varian looks like, like her son, I think. And, and she's a young woman. So, you know, she yeah. just naturally can mixes those ideas with uh, romantic love as well. It's not uncommon in Wolf's stories to have the protagonist, especially, hmm. um, yep. immediately fall in love for reasons of a secret connection that they're not aware of. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It is a common thing. And honestly, it makes sense with a lot of the ways that Wolf thinks about deeper patterns that express themselves in sometimes odd ways. I mean, the whole... In a sense, there's a connection there to symbols make us that, you know, it's there is a real love that she could have for Severian, but with everything else that's gone on, it gets channeled in sort of the wrong way. And so she thinks of it as more romantic love here. That could be that could well be. But no, we do get that. That is one thing here that this is the first time that I think we get the true sense that Dorcas is not just kind of tied to him, but is really committed to Severian right here. And he's maybe getting there. He certainly likes her better than Asia at this point. But I think that seeing how she reacts is what starts to change him. So Severian tells her about the note and all he did to reproduce it. So Dorcas sums up the case. So someone wrote it there, probably one of the inn servants, because he called the ostler by name. But what does that mean? And they talk a bit about the clues and the message that, and decide that it was for Dorcas. And she asks if he remembers some detail. And Severian says, I can remember everything except last night. (laughs) That's not useful. We get a detail that the scuttlery maid probably makes an aura chalk a week. The note said again, the woman with you has been here before. Do not trust her. So Severian says they now know that Dorcas reminds the note writer of his mother. They haven't met Owen yet. Dorcas responds, yes. And there were tears in her eyes. She's crying, but she probably doesn't understand why. Severian says she's not old enough to have had a child that could have written the note. But Dorcas says, I don't remember, and buries her face in the mantle. And so it always, he always refers to it as a brown mantle. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure what the point is of mentioning the color over and over and over. Maybe to contrast with his black cloak, with yeah. the Fuligen cloak. Yeah. And that's the end. Short chapter. <laughs> well, one thing is we took the whole middle part out and just we, did it last yeah. time. We took the big action last time, right. but that's all right. So a little bit about Dorcas and Severian there, and it is kind of a pause. Well, I guess I guess the whole chapter, if you have the actual, you, you get the second half of the Avern scene, right. really. So there there is more action here, but told in a, again, kind of like we were talking about back with Aniri's Mirrors, it's... You don't see the action directly. We get the action told after the fact, yes, through someone else's eyes. Yeah, it's not told by the person who had it, someone else who saw the action told to someone who had it happen to them, but they don't remember it. Yeah, so again, distancing. Well, we're going to be moving on next time then to. A little bit more of a gruesome topic. Maybe find out a little bit more about Agia and Agilis. Um, Also get to see Severian for the first time ply his trade. 
So we certainly hope that you have comments, thoughts, corrections, and complaints, and bring them to us on the Facebook group, the subreddit, Twitter, or email. You can find out how to do that on the show notes. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your wolf-reading friends. And until you hear from us next, may the Moira favor you. Take care. Coming home from school today Crying all along the way Been away for a boy to be Begging mama to shave me, please Mom won't shave me, Jesus can't save me Dog face boy time we'll get back to two hour episodes instead of this measly little yeah. one hour. <laughs> this hardly seems worth it <laughs> she says i adore the podcast thank you for the joy your labor of love gives me here's to many more hmm so i don't know how craig but my microphone has gotten all wet there must be a leak in the ceiling or something because it's getting all rusty here let me get this tissue and clean it off <laughs> She goes on, I've gone back and forth about sending this email and I am <laughs> sorry. I was dense. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can add the laughter later. <laughs> right. We'll make it natural in the thing. And yeah, there's yeah. your blooper. <laughs>